0: Welcome to Glad, your spatial fix for geography, life, and data. This podcast is brought to you by the Science of Cities and Regions program at the Alan Turing Institute. I'm Danny, your host for today, albeit briefly. Usually, Levi, Hiya. Rachel, Hello. and I join you from our studios at the British Library. But today, we're on holiday.
1: So today we're reaching back into the vault to our sad interviews to bring you one of our past guests, Danny Dorling, Halford-McKinder Chair of Geography at Oxford University. In this conversation, we talked about his life, times, and career, and also learned a little bit about who he would invite to a sad dinner party. And hey, if you're curious about the sad interviews, check out our Spatial Analytics and Data YouTube channel for the full back catalog.
2: And a quick technical note. We've recorded this interview at the height of a global pandemic from home, while we usually record Glad in the studio. So we're sorry for any issues with our audio quality. We hope we've gotten better since this. With that, we'll leave you with Danny, and we're glad you're here.
3: Welcome everybody to uh, today's special analytics and data uh, interviews. So my name is Mark Green, and I'm uh, doing the role of chair for in today's uh, interview. And we kindly are joined today by Danny Dawling, so Danny is the Halford Mackinder Professor of Geography at the University of Oxford. He's um, pretty much been in a lot of places. Yeah. He's been at Oxford, Sheffield, Newcastle, Bristol, Leeds and New Zealand, um, spreading the good word of data, quantitative geography pretty much everywhere he goes. Before he was an academic, though, Danny also worked as a play worker in a children's play scheme. Um, and we really pushed the idea that playing is learning something that he uh, continues to push pretty much every day, and indeed in PhD supervisions, pretty much all the time. Danny's research is pretty much around understanding inequality or forms of inequality, whether it's housing, health, employment, education, and he's pretty much mapped anything that you can shake a stick at. So with that, um, I'll hand over to Levi to start the first uh, set of questions.
2: Hi, welcome, Danny. Thank you for. Uh coming with us today. Normally, I kind of ask questions about uh, our interviewees' kind of personal experiences, academic experiences, um, and all the different kind of institutions uh, where they've spent their time. But um, before we get into that, I'd like to know, how are, uh, how are things going for you recently? What are you working on?
4: Uh, I was doing a lot of work uh, on the pandemic, uh, but I've published almost none of it. <laughs> and, and um, have decided to wait and see what happens. I, see, uh, I, think the, I, see. I think the pandemic is fascinating, but we could talk about that later. But I think we're not going to get a clear view of it for a couple of years, not least because we're so caught up in it. So so what I've done instead is I've gone back to what I mainly do, which is inequality, um, partly because I've been asked lots and lots of questions about inequality in the last 12 months. And I'm currently trying to work out if you were trying to describe seven typical children in the UK uh, to describe the range of inequalities in our society, how could you go about it? So that's the thing that's preoccupied by me at the moment.
2: That sounds very kind of on brand for what you've kind of looked at, as you say, for a long time, inequality uh, and and sort of statistics about it, new ways of presenting society. What kind of got you interested in the kind of quantitative aspects of the geography of inequality in the first place? What was kind of the motivating spark in your life that directed you down that path?
4: Yeah, I wasn't that interested in it originally. I was interested in computer graphics and visualization and what can we do with this new technology? Mm-hmm. And I drew maps, <laughs> originally, of the 1971 census. We had that in the 80s. Then we got the 81 census, 91. And the interest in inequality began to grow because mm. every 10 years, the differences that were being revealed by the census, but also by lots of other surveys, were growing wider. Uh, and now, in hindsight, it's easy to see. You know, the 80s were the most dramatic decade of an incredible tearing apart of British society. So in hindsight, we went from being the second most equal large country in Europe to Sweden. We were almost Scandinavian to the most unequal large country. Uh, Essentially we compete with a few small Eastern European countries for just how bad are we in terms of inequality? Uh, So it was data driven. It was it was the events. Mm -hmm. uh, And I was involved in mapping the thing and measuring it. And kind of to my shame, I didn't really notice it till 10 years after because it feels normal you know life feels normal to you as you're living as you're going through it
2: yeah i i suppose that does make sense it is hard to kind of pull yourself out of the stream of time while you're in it one kind of question though i did have is that uh it sounds to me that maybe that at the early kind of onset of your life there maybe was something uh, some sort of sensitivity to this question because you're one of the few people that i'm aware of that has their uh infant in junior school on your cv Yes. Um, why is that something that you want the world to know about you? And what is what do you think that it tells us?
4: I look back, I think I've had that there since the year 2000, and, which was about <laughs> the time I was becoming interested in inequality more. Uh, and I wrote a piece about where I grew up. I grew up on the roundabout in Oxford. Mm-hmm. And if you looked at the index of deprivation for that roundabout, you could see every single shade of colour used to map it around the roundabout. Um, so I grew up in hindsight, in a place which was more unequal than most people grow up. Mm-hmm. And I saw that where people lived, effective whether they stayed on at school, whether they left at 15 back then. The schools, why do I list the schools? We live in a funny world in those of us who have been to universities where, you know, on everybody else's resume or CV, they have to list their schools and their GCSEs and their A-levels. We kind of have this blank slate that goes, oh, forget all that before. We're not going to mention it. But we're just going to put down these universities as if it's really informative to know that somebody went to Harvard or Newcastle or whatever. Um, and it doesn't tell you as much. So, so I, I put the schools down. The schools are quite average. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, you'd find it hard to know about my schools now because the well, one one was burned down. But... Uh, they've gentrified some of the areas i went to school mm-hmm. in are now very different to to what they were in the 1970s I um, but i think uh was it there's a novel by don delalia i think uh where's where the famous quote you are your geography uh-huh. um i think we're very very shaped by who we're brought up by where mm-hmm. we're brought up what we see i think if i hadn't moved from i grew up in the city of oxford in a normal part of the city. Many people aren't aware that there are, well, there were normal yeah. parts of the city of Oxford. It was a town. I went to Newcastle in 1986. Mm-hmm. Uh, Newcastle had no jobs in 1986. It, it was a kind of industrial wasteland. Yeah. Um, now, if I hadn't done that, and I, I didn't go to Newcastle because it was an industrial wasteland. I had no idea. I was 18. Um, was
2: there a particular reason why you picked Newcastle coming straight out?
4: Uh, I wanted to get away, Uh, I I wanted to get away from this tiny, tiny Midlands town, which only had six state secondary schools where you kind of, you could know half the people in the city. I wanted (laughs) to get somewhere big, Um, and and at the time, this is in the 80s, there was a new show on TV called The Tube, hosted by Porter Yates and Mm -hmm. Jules Holland, and I thought Newcastle was going to be the next big place for music, and my friends, three of them, went to Manchester uh, and they got it right. And <laughs> they went They went the right place. Uh, yeah. So I had to study. You
2: know. <laughs> what a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when you were at Newcastle, you you kind of did a, a few different things across your time there. I'd like to ask a little bit about kind of the the feeling of doing your PhD at Newcastle. At the time, you were working with Stan Oppenshaw, right? Yeah? yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about how that kind of research environment felt and what was exciting about that? that time in, in your, your career?
4: Yeah. Uh, Stan was, and is, uh, unique because he was incredibly infused all the time to a, a ridiculous level. Uh, and he also let you do what you like, um, with almost zero interference, which I think means I'm not a particularly good PhD supervisor because you tend to copy your PhD supervisors. Um, there was a thing called the Regional Research Laboratory at the time. They got some funding. Mm-hmm. Martin Charterman's there. Steve Carver, Chris Brunsden, Anna Ford was there, and it felt like something was happening. And the kind of thing you—I mean—you sound very old when you say this, but we had a little. There was, there was a mainframe, big mainframe. There was a VAX mini computer, and mm-hmm. this IBM PC arrived which was seen as so precious that the plastic cover had to be put over its keyboard every night (laughs) to stop the dust gathering on it and it it could do graphics. Um, So there was a sort of sense of excitement. Stan was doing all kinds of things. He was trying to do artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. of a particular kind years before its time. He was trying to hunt clusters of uh, leukemia in in patients. Lots lots and lots of things were were going on. And it was, you know, in hindsight, because I just thought it was normal, it wasn't normal. Mm-hmm. It was unusually liberating, exciting, could do what you like. And things, I was looking at visualisation, uh, and mm-hmm. I could interlibrary loan 1,800 papers from the library <laughs> for free. Didn't cost anything. And I could read everything that was written in 88-89, uh, which was the years in which visualisation really began in, in computing mm-hmm. and supercomputing. Um, so, so I was lucky. I had a uh, an introduction to research, which is the kind of, you know, the Hollywood dream version of how it's supposed to be.
2: Yeah, well, sounds like it. It's interesting you mentioned being able to read everything uh, that there was on the topic. A couple of other speakers in our series have also mentioned a similar kind of thing, feeling like you have your your hands on kind of the entire domain that you're going into. Can you talk a little bit about how it felt for you to do what you did on inequality? You, you talked a little bit about sort of the changing society, but how is the research that you were engaged with kind of changing at the same time?
4: Well, inequality was much harder in hindsight. The thing about computer graphics was they, they came as history to it. It's the big supercomputers in the US were making their money simulating nuclear explosions the cold war was beginning to come to an end the u.s government wasn't willing to pay them to do that they had to invent a new reason you had to have two com- computers and that's visualization and, and those graphics early on uh inequality there's an enormous amount written about uh you know so for that i wrote a book called injustice and i had to spend five years reading and reading and reading because it's, it's a central part of sociology of politics uh, of economics and i kind of got out of geography largely i i read things almost very few geographers look at inequality yeah because many because it's crowded out by these other people who say it's mine um and so i i i read a lot of things which were new and interesting mm-hmm. and also i was getting older so my ability to do whizzy things with graphics and computers was declining i could have carried sure. on but i could see i was going to begin to lose that one mm-hmm. but my kind of ability to be arrogant and to think. I can skim read a book in half an hour and I'll get the gist of it. You know, that, that's a skill that increases as you get older because you kind of have a sense of of what will be in a book where and how to read it fast. And it's something you find almost impossible when you when you're 18 and 19 and an undergraduate. Yeah. Um how can you know how to do that?
2: Question, you know, I don't know, but it sounds like an interesting transition anyway.
4: Yeah.
2: One of the other kind of interesting transitions that I'm interested in with your career is. Uh, You went from Newcastle to Bristol, then to Leeds, then to Sheffield, as as Mark mentioned. Um, You spent quite a bit of time at Sheffield, but not so much at Leeds and Bristol individually. In comparison, what made Sheffield feel so right? And why did it kind of suit your needs at the time?
4: Oh, a lot of it was probably kind of arrogance and ego and um, promotions. Uh, But I could say in Bristol, I, I just couldn't afford to get a house. Excellent. I had to rent and uh, Bristol is lovely and the centre was lovely, but I was being outbid as a university lecturer by the richer students who could actually afford the flat above me. And the problem is if the students are above you, um yeah, it's not good. Indeed. Um so uh Leeds was more of a kind of corporate university, and I don't think I really fitted, I felt I didn't fit in greatly to what was wanted. Um Whereas, and I was very lucky. What has happened, I can tell you now because it's long enough, since a physical geography professor mm-hmm. uh, had made a deal with the University of Sheffield to come, and he had made a deal that he would get various members of staff and so on and set up a research centre. And at the last minute, he pulled out. So all the all the deal had been worked out, all the posts, the finances, everything else had been worked mm-hmm. out, and they advertised in human geography. And I applied and, and uh, the head of the department said, by the way, Daddy, if you were to ask for this, 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 and this, um, and so, so it was, you know, and that's partly, it was very fortunate. I uh, got a group of people to do research and we, and we did work together. Um, but also by that time I had children, mm-hmm. uh, they were at school and uh, children, Uh, rightly have a good reason to dislike you if you uproot them and take them away from all their friends (laughs) and everybody else and that kind of fixes you uh, in a particular place
2: yeah I see I see and so then of course after I think it was a little bit over 10 years at Sheffield um, you ended up leaving to go to Oxford now I imagine that there's sort of push factors and pull factors around that decision I'd love to know a little bit more about What went into going to Oxford and and how that kind of choice happened for you? How did you know when it was was, uh, time to move on there?
4: Um, It was about 2012 when I knew it was time to move on. And that's because Mm -hmm. uh, the government had just introduced £9,000 a year fees. And in 2012, if your students got A, A, B at A level, you could take as many of them as you liked. And Sheffield, mm-hmm. we were the AAB University. And the problem was that Leeds to Manchester took our students. And, and that happened again uh, the year after. When that happens, when half the undergraduates of the entire social science faculty don't turn up mm-hmm. twice, um, then you're looking at problems. So so, mm-hmm. so I thought I need to get out, and other people did. And once people leave, of course, you then don't, don't have a problem. And... Everybody gets to keep their job. Mostly, you stay. (laughs) So it was was flight. I had to. I had to. I I thought I had to go. Um, And that an environment where that happens also, people are pretty upset in that circumstances. You kind Mm -hmm. of you Mm want to leave. Um, I never thought I would go to Oxford. I Mm -hmm. thought I'd go stay in Yorkshire and go to York. um, But it actually turns out to be quite hard to commute there. I thought I might try and be trendy and go to London, kind of commuting. You know, once or twice a week, but still living in the north. Um, I looked at other places. Oxford did approach me, and my little brother still lived in the city. I've got friends in the city. I wasn't particularly impressed by the university because if you grew up in Oxford, you're not. You don't, you know, it's, it's automatic you don't like the University of Oxford if you grew up in Oxford. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but it's increasingly kind of. Made sense in Middle Age, late Middle Age as you know, a sensible place to be. I thought, uh, I still think that my parents might move back here in their very old age. Uh, so a lot of things not to do with work. Yeah, uh, increasingly, as like Sheffield, had a lot to do with kids and schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oxford, it's quite a lot about family, friends, and parents. Yeah, because um, departments, you slowly work, you can't even work that moving between them. Uh, the grass isn't ever greener they're all <laughs> remarkably similar job departments same I things see. happen just takes a bit of time there's a crisis every 10 years there's a soft and good spot every so often head of the department is really good comes along nobody notices because they're really good and they don't get credit when the <laughs> head of the department is really bad comes along and everybody notices you know and it happens again and again and again
2: i see i see yeah well that is a great overview i think of kind of your, your history and trajectory throughout your career and I really appreciate the the candor of, of the discussion. I think at this point I'll hand you over to Danny to kind of talk about some more about your work now uh, as well as um some kind of other theoretical factors. So we'll Thank swap.
0: Thanks very much. Yep. Great. Thanks very much Levi. Um and, and thanks very much Danny um again for, for accepting it's it's really a pleasure to be able to to be in the interview. I want to jump back at least a little bit. For the start of my section, to the early days that you talked a little bit with Levi in Newcastle, and and how I think you said now that it it kind of well in hindsight it was a magic place to be, and in a way that turned you on to visualization and not only the place, probably also the time. But I wonder if you could give us a little bit more of what it was what it was like to be. Kind of at the core of new things being happening, new ideas, and there's this new technology that is coming, and you're at the place, at the right place to make the most of
4: it. <laughs> okay, I should explain. I should say, and there were wider things then, which again were unusual. So, you know, Tony Champion was doing population geography there very well. Peter Taylor was probably one of the best political geographers on the planet. Um, a few years later, I looked back at the citations of the academics who were teaching me at Newcastle, and they were some of the best in the world. The geographers at the time in the 80s, but you didn't know that. Um, what happened? New- Newcastle University was on the Janet Main line. It got email early along with Edinburgh and London. Uh, it had GIS along with Edinburgh and Birkbeck first, you know, the first really ropey uh arc info <laughs> that command line that just about worked. Uh, it had access to the supercomputer at Rutherford. And Newcastle also had a very very good mainframe in the basement to of Clement Tower, um, which in hindsight they weren't as good in other places, and so there was that going on. Uh, but there was also this, you know, set of people who were doing quantitative spatial science at a time when that was pretty new. You'd had the quantitative geographers of the sixties, uh, but a lot of their work had been theoretical. What could you do? And they put stuff in punch cards and come out with something, and often it actually might be wrong, you know, because you know you make mistakes when you're computer programming. Uh, whereas by the 80s, you could actually see your code, you could alter it, uh, and also we had these microcomputers for the first time, uh, and I and I could program. I, I'm a geek. Uh, I couldn't read a word until I was eight, but I could program very well at the age of 12. And if you turn up at university at eighteen, able to program, uh, well, um, that uh, you know that that is a huge, huge advantage.
0: Yeah, uh, and one that hasn't changed or uh, or diminished its value in forty years. You could. No, no, argue.
4: and that's amazing. That I got to say, it is. I I do think it's very odd that that somehow we haven't in England at least changed the way we teach maths and programming so that a quarter of people going to university are just adept at doing it. I do think it's I do think it's odd. But you have to be good at math to be good at programming, really. And
0: I guess now in from the from the vantage point of 2021, it's very obvious that the micro these microcomputers you're talking about were revolutionary in how they enabled a lot of research or in and how they allowed us to think about research in different ways. I wonder because because we've also had other I'm asking this question because we've also had other other speakers who always go back to the 80s when GIS was being born, when computers were becoming a thing that mere mortals could could own or at least use. Have you come across any other technological change since that has brought the same amount of change in the way we think about research, in the way we are able to study society, inequalities, economics? Etc. That that you would say is comparable, or you know, the last big thing we did was microcomputers.
4: I do think the last. Oh, well, I mean, the problem is I'm the wrong age for this because it was the, the time that fits with my youth, and people tend to think that their their youths were particularly exciting times because they were exciting for other reasons. Um, but you know, I had Acon and Archimedes computers. We had a Windows system before Apple did, so I I, I had I was programming Windows, putting Windows up. To, where the windows did what i wanted again in the in the late 1980s i wrote my own gis system which you which you could do which was fast enough um and was faster than the ones on the on the mini computers and the screen okay i'm looking at you now to screen where i guess our little videos actually are the size of the resolution of the screens we had back then um so the difference is that the printer resolution was far higher than the screen resolution. Say so that kind of thing. Um, but no, I don't. I, I'm sceptical. Uh, I, I wrote a book two or three well ages <laughs> published two or three years ago called Slowdown, which is about the speed of innovation and other things. And so, and so I've looked up other people's work uh, who've written about innovation and technology, and they say the 1930s were the fastest decade. Uh, for actual new inventions Um, and then computing it's the 60s and 70s but of course mass computing it's the 80s um zx80 in england is kind of what what began it and they this is a whole set of dozens of uh, historical economists basically do not credit the 90s or the 2000s uh with very much at all mobile phone just the, the mobile phone and and what that allows everyday people to do in terms of of organizing their lives and how that takes over from, from the letter um you know you don't write letters to people anymore you, you message them but in terms of of research and in terms of spinning things around to look at them in 3d to see if there's a, if there's a pattern or not well we could just about do that by the early 90s and i yeah i i don't you know, when people talk about immersive data caves, I don't see them coming out of those immersive data caves saying, Eureka, I've discovered this. Um, yeah. So, no, no, I, I'm I'm saying the big no, acceleration was then. I guess
0: one of the things that have changed in these 40 years, and, and you've somewhat made a allusion a to it, is that the way people can access this technology has radically changed. And you could argue that you had to be the wizard that, Learns to code at twelve and goes to the university to be able to to access visualization and do visualization and and today is, is everywhere and arguably some people might say that there's too many of it too many visualizations being made it's too easy to make to visualize data and to make maps. Do you agree with with that? Do you think it's too easy and it maybe should be harder, or do you think it's a good thing that almost everyone with a no, normal no, no, computer? I, I don't could... think
4: it's easy enough. I'd like it to be made easier. I and I really, I really kind of I politically dislike Microsoft. Okay. But we have Microsoft Excel and we have Microsoft Word. We do not have a functioning at least, it may exist, but it's not well known. Microsoft Map. Uh, and I wish we did. I also would hope it would be well programmed and see you to doing sensible things. And of course, from my point of view, that the default will be a cartogram, and you'd have to force it back to be an equal area map. Math-
0: but. <laughs> yeah. um,
4: but no, no, I'm I'm not a purist on the on the on cartography. Partly because we have a hindsight history of cartography in that we remember the really good stuff from the '30s and the '50s. We don't remember the pile and pile of stuff that actually was awful done by hand and wasn't very good. Um, So we create a kind of folk memory of great cartographers with great ability, hill shading by hand. Um, But no, I I would like to see more visualization. The pandemic has been interesting for visualization of graphs. uh, I got, (laughs) I got attacked and ripped apart by the economists for my graphs, but anyway, um, but just watching, People explaining, using log scales, explaining what an exponential growth is, trying to look at, I mean, I know we're still in it, so so this is what I mean about it. it's hard to talk about the pandemic from outside, um, but it's having events where you suddenly have a lot of data, and uh, the data really matters, then changes people's, the importance of visualising it and trying to explain it, uh, and that's what we need more of. I, I'm quite worried. Because I've got too old to map the census, and the next census will be coming out in a year or so. And I would really like to see the census mapped in a way that I couldn't do, better than something I could do, but not just throwing it into something and mapping it in 10 minutes. But, I, you know, I've got kind of got a hope that somebody's going to do something. Really? Oh, a
0: challenge for the audience. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess more looking forward now, and you were hinting at this do, do you have any ideas or any wishes for if we if we were to have this conversation in say five ten years and we talked about visualization again mm. what would you want to be able to see and that, that we can do today that maybe we could do in five ten years What what would the science fiction of cartography and and cartograms perhaps look
4: like <laughs> that's that def- well i mean the science fiction of cartograms is that this map changes all the time as you want it to so, so that the projection is not fixed um, and, you're, and you're not too obsessed by it. But I've always had this idea of a 3D data cube where you have the normal map is horizontal, but you look above you and you can see the future or projection and a plane, which is a, you know the next 10 years. And you can look beneath you and you can see the layers of previous data, but you can actually do it. Rather than, you know, all GIS textbooks have that kind of 3D imaging of layers, but actually want to be in the layers, seeing them, and then say, okay, bring in the British House panel study, the election study, um, bringing the family resources survey, let's look at average incomes by area and shade that this color, slightly translucent, so I can see the other data through it. I I can endlessly describe what I'd like to see.
0: Um, Well, I think that's important, too. Yeah. Uh, It's a place to start, absolutely.
3: Yeah.
0: And actually, now that you've mentioned these data sets, the British Panel Survey and the census, et cetera, I, th- I wanted to end my my part on discussing a little bit how that transition or how your re- origins in technology and visualization in, in quantitative methods, as a almost methods expert, have influenced your thinking about politics, about uh, studying inequalities and, uh, and studying the power imbalances that are crucial to, to these inequalities, right? And I'm asking this also if you want to take the question in that direction because some people would say you don't need quantita- a quantitative background. All of this is qualitative and it's about politics and and numbers are not really where the the power is. Would you agree with that or 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 not?
4: Uh, uh, no, no, I, I don't, particularly in, in, in geography. I don't... I'm a bit really crude about it, but I think... Um, if you don't do many numbers in geography people from outside geography aren't going to be that interested in what you've got to say which could annoy some geographers but you know the world isn't crowding out to find what is the deep theoretical thoughts that geographers have uh but to put it <laughs> but slightly more politely you know what today's our political arguments as of you know last few hours is about a 10 pound an hour minimum wage or 15 power pound an hour minimum wage it's Labour party conference on today and to actually judge whether £15 an hour is reasonable, possible or, you know, is 10 minimal, you've got to have some idea of these. You can't understand any of the inequality statistics, I'm afraid, without, you know, fairly good GCSE maths and a bit of A-level. We don't make, we make it harder in Britain, uh, but it's really hard. But also just understanding voting, first past the post, why it's a tragedy Again, the Labour Party conference, That Labour Party did not endorse proportional representation in the last two days. Without PR, you're a really weird European country. The rest of Europe has PR, coalitions. It's not all utopia, but generally nice folk, less poverty, sort of that housing and so on. Uh, whereas we have our weird voting system. And if you don't understand first past the post, which is a mathematical thing, what it does, what it results in, you won't realise why it matters. You think, oh, that's just another option. You know, but it's what the US has. It's what we have. It's not what the rest of Europe has. And the rest of Europe does better. And, and it forces you to form coalitions. It doesn't let this big business take over political parties and get majorities quite as easily. And that's all, without knowing the maths of it, uh, you won't realise how you're being used. But the same for the economy and the cost of housing and so on. When people tell you that something isn't, in, isn't possible, you know, and that's the ultimate one in politics, you know, that isn't possible. It's not realistic. Well, if you can do the numbers, you can work out what is possible and realistic. You can look at what happens elsewhere and you can say, oh, what, how come it works there then? Um, by looking at the numbers in that place. Uh, so, you yeah, know, not saying you have to use numbers for everything, but I do think, particularly human geography, uh, by shying away from numbers because they're a bit hard, has actually weakened the potential power of the discipline. And we currently have. I've got to say, we've, one of our government departments has just been renamed levelling up and housing and communities right it's the department of levelling up levelling up which is going to be a big agenda for the next few years is all about geographical differences so where are all the human geographers in britain who are going to contribute to the levelling up agenda of the government and they can't because you've got to you can't level something up without having two numbers and saying that one's going to be a bit like the other number um you can critique it without the numbers but but you're not going to be listened to
0: I think that's a very apt way of a and into my section. I'm going to hand you over to uh, the sad party. Thank you. And Rachel.
1: All right. Well, this has been fantastic. And um, as we discussed, and as if, as people who've attended these interviews before know, by the time we reach me, we generally switch gears, and we're going to do that. But I just wanted to follow up just a tiny bit. You made a comment sort of offhand to Levi about moving from one university to another and that children reach an age where they have a right to to expect not to be moved. And I wondered about this right to be rooted because I think it's important. I think it's important when we talk about inequality and spatial inequality and leveling up. And so... Yeah, I suppose I'm curious on the personal level about children having a right to be rooted. Is that something that you believe? But also what you think that means for for wider society?
4: Uh yep. And also, of course, you can you can actually begin to measure it. And at the tragic level in Britain, um, over a quarter of children are now living in private rented accommodation. And in London they're moving every two years, uh, which is awful. And we haven't we haven't seen that. Really since Victorian times. Uh, I was lucky. I was moved at six within a city and not moved again. And you know, anecdotally, when you talk about moving, and you know the ages of 15 is the worst age, by the way. Uh, and I I also yeah. used to... Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> you have to pay them back later in life if you moved a 15-year-old. <laughs> you know, they, they could be okay, but they've got good reason. Uh, and I used to, for my lectures, way back in some I did in Newcastle, I get all the undergraduates to put up their hand. I go age naught, one, two, three, four. Put up your hand when you've moved uh, to get an idea of this. Um, I do think it really matters. And also, you know, academics often have partners and it's careers, and it, these are the things we don't talk about in other countries, say so even New Zealand, but again, in much more of mainland Europe loyalty and staying in a place is is valued more and hierarchy is seen as less important so it's easier to stay and stay almost to say in japan you know maybe almost too much where in japan pay depends on how long you've been somewhere it's a real incentive not to move um the uk went for this very competitive model of ref competition moving around easier to get promoted if you move rather than stay Loyalty not being and service not being seen as particularly valuable at a time. It's changing a bit, Um, but I don't think it's a good uh, model for what it does for moving people around.
1: Well, no, but I suppose, of course, I'm American, and I'm in the UK. So I have voted with my feet. And clearly, I think something different. And I'm curious how we how we reconcile our attitudes towards, say, the Erasmus program and the UK, sort of leaving the EU, and our attitudes, I think, towards movement at a broader geographic scale versus the sort of the importance of rootedness. Because yeah. they don't they don't necessarily sit well
4: together oh no no you're, you're right you're right I mean, but I would say again being sort of slightly slightly rude um you've moved in the right direction uh, <laughs> you, you, you have moved to a place where people live longer where the education levels are higher, where the homelessness rates are lower. I can go through the differences with the USA you may have come from a state in the USA that's doing well but even a state that was doing well which, which state did you come from? I
1: came from Rhode Island, but I would say it, it, it is, of course, always it is, of course, always both geographical and socioeconomic.
4: Yeah. And
1: yes, well, I'll use up all of my minutes, and my co-host <laughs> will later on scold me. They probably wouldn't, but
4: I should say, yeah. sorry, no, no, that your question very, very quickly. Um, there was one brilliant point where at Sheffield I was collaborating with Demetrius Ballas, who is well from Greece. Uh, ben hennig from Germany, Switzerland is now in Iceland. In fact, I think I was the only person who wasn't a migrant, um, and you know that's a very lucky thing that you get in England, which you do get less elsewhere. But they were tending to do this at a relatively younger age. Mm. You know, there comes a point where people and the people they're with want to settle down for a bit, and of course, the danger then is the department know they've got you, so they can bangs admin on you because they know you're likely to run away and. You know, that's yeah. that's partly a problem as well. If you have a model of moving, if you don't like it, go, uh, and that model isn't necessarily a great a great model for people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I think this is probably a topic for uh, the pub and or a workshop because I I do feel that especially in UK universities and possibly also in US universities that there is a tension of sort of reputations being built on the back of making people move. And I don't have an issue with movement, but I do think that then um, you need to your your policies and your attitudes towards movement need to make space for those who have moved. And the pandemic has been a fantastic example of international staff who have not been able to see family, you know, and the discussion about whether or not we could holiday last summer when people really just wanted to hug their mothers. So it is very interesting. Okay, but now we're going to do the fun part at this stage of the interview, um, in an effort to liven things up, although with this guest and with all of our guests, this doesn't appear to be an issue. But we ask our guests to imagine that they're invited to a dinner party, a sad dinner party, so a spatial analytics and data dinner party. Um, and the original inspiration for this portion of our interview comes from Desert Island Discs, which is a UK radio show that asks guests to imagine themselves as castaways, right? And so what we're asking you to do now is not to be cast away, but to join in and to join in a dinner party. And so I asked you if you could suggest four people that you would have as dinner companions, a book in case you get bored and have to entertain yourself, and some small talk, um, including a nugget of wisdom, a regret, a fortuitous event, and a formative experience or memory. And I've already used up a lot of my time. I was very curious about who you would invite for dinner. And I don't know, do you want to lead with the discussion of these these folks?
4: Okay, I'll explain. I mean, it's a fantasy, but a strange one. (laughs) I I picked uh, four four geographers, famous geographers, who I have not had dinner with any of them. Uh, The first one was... Uh, Theresa May who became prime minister was home secretary and I partly picked her because she went to school about two miles away from where I went to school but in the countryside and a few years before me and I just like I'd love to have a chance to talk to Theresa May about what it was like growing up in the 70s just a little bit further out from Oxford and then I picked Jeremy Corbyn for balance Uh, the geography connection with Jeremy is that when he was 18 he went to Jamaica to help out in the, in the way that do-gooders do. And he said, what can I do? And they said, oh, you can teach geography because anybody can do that. So Jeremy Corbyn's first job was a geography teacher in Jamaica, unqualified. Uh, and then Prince William, because I, I am unembarrassed, who, of course, did geography at St Andrews. Got, I wrote a book with somebody who was in his year at school and I, I was just intrigued about that. what is the life of a royal actually like. And finally, Michael Palin, who became... Uh, one of the presidents of the World Geographical Society. And I once sat next to Michael Palin on the Central Line. And he was on his way to the BBC, and I didn't dare say anything at all. And I've kind of regretted that always. So that, that's why I'd like to have Michael there.
1: And do you imagine that this would be lively conversation, having these people around the table
4: with you? I think, well, the thing is, you know, they're all famous. So they would be. they wouldn't feel snubbed because they've got other famous people to be with. So hopefully they'd be a bit relaxed. And they're all getting, well, not Prince William, but they're getting on a bit. So I'd hope they'd have things uh, to say. they know secrets. I think, you know, both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, I think, could be members of the Privy Council, one of the most secretive bodies in Britain. Poss- possibly the only two geographers who ever have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, whether they'd spill the beans after a-, a glass of wine, I don't know, but, you know, we'd have to try.
1: Well, we don't have time to go through all of your answers to my questions for this said dinner party, so I'm going to have to cherry pick. And I'm I'm curious about a couple of points. One of which was that when asked for a formative experience, you noted that it was going to London to collect your brother um, when you were about three and a half years old, and I wondered what it was about that experience that has stuck with you that makes it.
4: What happened? Formative. Oh, why did I remember well? It's around about three or four when you really do first remember things, Uh, and people often think there's an earlier one. My mum and dad didn't know about bottles of milk or what to do about bottles of milk, and I can remember them being very flustered. And a man appearing, a bit like Thomas the Tank Engine, who was the fat controller with a bottle of milk, who turned out to be the regional controller of South Southern Trains. The reason we were going to London to get my brother was that he was being adopted. And so you literally went, uh, I think in this case, to the hospital. We went and got him. And it was an exciting trip. And then a year and a half later, we did it again and got another brother. Hmm. And um, so I knew where babies came from because they were six months old. I I knew exactly how you make babies and where they come from. And and I don't think it was till I was eight or nine that somebody managed to persuade me that babies don't come from London. And that's not how you get them. (laughs) So so that's why it's formative, because... You know, it's it's something for somebody else of my age, where there were a lot of adoptions in the early seventies. It's not that rare an event, um, but then it became harder and harder to adopt, and fewer people have that experience. Yeah,
1: no, I can absolutely see that. Um, when I asked you for an accident or a fortuitous experiment, you sort of made a joke, and didn't really give me a fortuitous circumstance and I wondered you know because you care so much about inequality whether instead I might ask you to think about inequality and the role of luck and how much fortune and luck actually matter for us.
4: Yes it's huge Um, and I've got to work with some really brilliant academics I've been lucky really really good ones and I Increasingly fine, particularly as they get older, they tend to admit that they were lucky. They were lucky. Things happened. They weren't particularly clever. They weren't something else. It was a whole series of, of things right from the beginning of just not being ill on the day of a particular exam. You know, it's not that you're good at exams, it's just you weren't ill on the day of an exam. Two, that the circumstances coming together to mean that you were just at the right place at the right time. Now, those luck can be different for different people. It's much easier for a man of my age to have good luck than for a woman to have had good luck. Uh, And much easier, of course, for a white man and for a man from Oxford um, to have had good luck. But luck and bad luck are are crucial. The longer you go on, the more you see it. one, One way in which older people see it is when they have children and then when those children have children, the fortunes of the grandchildren have as much, if not more, to do with luck than has to do with anything to do with whether they strive or whether they're lazy and 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 so on. And that that's kind of fairly crucial. Um, you know, if somebody hadn't been wanting to hire somebody like me at a time when I'd been wanting to leave somewhere, um, then I wouldn't have got necessarily the jobs that I have got, which I've been fortunate. But because you only live one life, it's really easy to convince yourself that you did it or you're – Yourself. Uh, and sorry, I go on too long, but this matters. No, this is good. There's a brilliant book called Um, I think Luck and Chance by a leading economist in America whose name I've forgotten. Um people who do really well in society who are really rich tend often not to believe in luck. They think it was them that did it. Uh and it's terrible because it's not true. It's easy to show it's not true. But if they did realize that that it was luck more often, they might have worked hard, but there's a thousand people who've worked hard for everybody who's worked hard, who's made it. Luck is the defining factor. If people who who are doing well realize that, they would often not be quite as mean, possibly. And that may sound trivial, but the effect is enormous on, on societies because it only takes a few people with a lot of money who are mean and they can buy newspapers, they can fund think tanks and they've changed your politics for a place. Uh, and that's that's why the luck, understanding luck is mattering more and more beginning to work it out.
1: And can, can we think, of, and this will we'll sort of slowly end up on this point, but what about sort of geography and luck? I mean, there's a geography clearly a geography of chance but there's a geography of fortune right that there are some places that maybe the between structures and place you're more likely to have the the lucky things fall in your
4: lap and some people yes. never,
1: are never ex- like an exposure index to luck some people maybe just aren't exposed
4: yes. to fortune very often one other thing you can do with first year lectures is put up um CASA CSIA CASA's booth maps you know the modern deprivation maps and, and they go right down to um MSRA level and smaller you just put it up on the screen, and then you you zoom in on where your undergraduates come from. It doesn't matter whether you do Newcastle or Leeds or Bristol or Oxford. They all come from the green areas. The only question is whether it's dark green or middle green. They don't come from the orange or the red areas. So they may have been lucky to have got into your particular university, but they already started with an advantage. Um, But the luck thing, so a student of mine is currently looking at this in London, Because London is seen as a place that's kind of lucky. You've got more chance of being socially mobile if you're in London. But actually, Londoners themselves get crowded out by all those people coming in with their luck, which actually makes it quite hard. And Oxford's even more extreme for this. So when we're talking about academics moving, the city of Oxford is kind of invaded by an endless stream of people who've made their CV elsewhere and students from around the world all wanting to live in a tiny city of 150,000 people. Um, it was quite pleasant during the pandemic. But when the pandemic's over, you know, you get this crowding, you get this crowding in and you can see who, who supposedly has been lucky and who not. And there, there are differences in the chances. Beth and Thomas and I produced an atlas once where we shaded every small part of Britain. According to what, on average, would happen to you as a child? What was the most likely thing? And so you could kind of see the geography of of luck, and you could see the areas where doing well is actually normal, and it's not doing well, and the areas where odds on life's going to be hard. It's you know that's the kind of thing that helps explain to people where they live.
1: Yeah. No, that's very nice. And I think it's a very nice point to sort of end on and then open things up. And so I'm going to turn it back over to Mark, who I think is going to lead us through any discussion and questions.
3: Thank you, Rachel. Um, so to conclude in this session, I'll, I'll be going through the chat and uh, responding and posting those questions to Danny. Um, and since I got discretion, I'll pick the what I think are the best ones or not, not necessarily the most trickiest. Um, so I think the, the, my favourite one from the chat has to be Isabel's question, um, and I will remind you, Danny, that you're you're being recorded, so don't slander any place too much. Um, but what do you think is the most interesting place in the UK? What do you think is the most average place? And what do you think is the most boring place? You know, you've mapped everywhere across a range of metrics. You, you
4: must know this very well. Oh, well, no, no. It's, it, it, it's 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 um, it's subjective, isn't it? And of course, I have to have been there and I haven't been to most of the UK. Um, so I always try and go to places I haven't been before if I get an invite. Boy, but for me, the centre of Edinburgh is uh, most interesting because it works in three dimensions, because the streets are on different levels. So there aren't many parts of uh, the UK where the geography is actually 3D. And if you don't get the 3D geography, you're going to get lost. And of course, Edinburgh is also kind of quite a European city and different. Uh, most average place is somewhere near Tamworth for the centre that I, I worked out years ago. Um, most boring, most boring, um, being careful, I think commuter belt outside of London. So I'm not naming any particular place. and Of course, Oxford's on that kind of circuit, but commuter belt villages a mile from London where everybody used to go into London and that's what they did. But hopefully during the pandemic, they've discovered a life and <laughs> something else to do and invented something so that they're no longer as boring as, as those places used to be. Very, very sensible choices, I think. Um, so Richard Cantwell has asked, is
3: there a data set that even doesn't exist or you can't access that you'd love to get your hands on?
4: Uh, yes, the criminal justice system. So Rachel was saying about luck. Um we cannot get the data on who goes in and out of prisons. Just as easy as that. We know very roughly, or we're not sure, but we think one in seven children in Britain have had a parent who's been in prison at some point in their childhood. Uh, we have the largest prison population in Europe, um, you know, 80 to 100,000. Um, huge turnover, very young, mostly male. So one of the most stark statistics in the United States is you can map the U.S. by is a baby born in this block more likely to go to prison as an adult or to go to university. And I think it's really, really bad that in Britain we hide all the data on that. um, So we kind of pretend it doesn't happen. And you and I used to be in Sheffield. I'll never forget looking down that map of Sheffield and seeing the old and ancient university had a third of the city in the middle. Uh, Sheffield Hallam. The local university had another third. And then the Crown Courts and the Magistrates Courts and the police owned another third of the centre. And, and that kind of third was for the bottom third of people in society. And, yeah, so that's the data set I really, really would like to see. And it extends to with referral units and all kinds of ways in which we police um, people, you know, lo- lo- lower down in our social order who are so low down we don't consider it's even worth... Uh, letting people like me know where they are and what they're doing. Yeah, and it it fits quite nicely with the
3: the stuff that crime statistics often cluster in the same places where poor child health is. And even though these things aren't related, the the drivers of them are. Yeah, Um, And it really gets under that, how does inequality get under the skin Um, kind of approach to things. Next up, uh, Philip Turner, who's asked quite a few questions. Thank you, Philip. What are political interventions that should be made now to reduce inequality and how do they differ between demographic groups?
4: Where to begin? Um, Well, uh, the instant one right now, as of kind of today and last few weeks, is not to reverse the £20 universal credit cut. That has a massive effect that £1,000 a year that people on universal credit get is you can't be overemphasised. That's kind of like an easy one. There are so many. I mean, what I would say, just, we've been watching the German elections, or maybe you haven't, I'm weird, I kind of look at, um, I, I, w- I would say that Britain should seriously consider whether it would like to have the inequality profile of Germany, average European country, quite successful European country. Would we like to be uh, like Germany in terms of the gap between our rich and our poor? Um, and then you have to do what you need to do to get there. Um, so if you're serious about levelling up or levelling out, uh, I would level like the Germans. Um, that would be my, my shorter answer.
3: Excellent. Um, changing track a bit from inequality. So Emmanuel uh, says, a very nice description of the business cycles of the uni- university departments in the UK. Are these cycles a UK thing and consequently a product of the u-
4: university sector in the UK? Or do you think that this is how universities work everywhere? Uh, my experience of going around is that universities work very differently in different places. We have all had the most enormous explosion in, in, you know, one of the biggest, and I did, (laughs) that book Slowdown I did, only four things were exploding, like temperature and um, CO2 and so on. One of the four was graduates worldwide. So the whole world has experienced an explosion from almost nobody going to university, less than one in 10,000 when my granddad was around, to 50% in a large number of countries. And that creates dislocation. But the, the British model, the ref, the competition, the grading and so on, uh, was a particular model. Uh, it was brought in by a country that really believed in competition. And I, not, I am not sure if you stepped back and looked at it and disregarded the rankings that are made in London of universities internationally and just said that they're made in London. Let's actually step back and look at this. I'm not sure it would be that laudable. One of the reasons that the REF was brought in was that we decided to rename our local universities, our polytechnics universities, and then to create a justification for not giving them the same money as the old universities, we created a scoring system based on how many papers have you written. The result then is, is academics being forced to write hundreds of papers, which you know as well as I, how often the median paper is actually read and referred to. Um, and... It's when we, when we talk about this as a success, and I'm not sure it is, I wish that before I die, I can watch university academics writing their one paper in three years that they really want to write when they found something out that really matters to them, and only writing other things if you know they're absolutely compelled to, rather than this forcing mechanism that we have at the moment.
1: I'm just so again, this is just a topic that is so fascinating because, of course, it operates at sort of an intellectual or academic level, but then we are all in this industry. So, of course, you know, we experience it subjectively. But I wonder, and this may reflect sort of coming from the United States, but if universities are to be publicly funded, mm-hmm. then how do we do this? What should we be doing with our time? And I, I think that if people are paying taxes, there comes a point where perhaps. People paying taxes have a right to ask questions about the quality of life that we're having. And I think we've partly gotten ourselves in this situation because it's a really nice profession. Yes. And so we need to be made a little bit miserable because, because we live off the backs of taxpayer dollars. and But that's just my hypothesis. I'm really curious what you think.
4: Except we don't. We did until 2012. And then in 2012, when £9,000 a year fees came in. The the vast, large majority of the the money that goes to English universities is is not from the government, it's not from taxation. Um, It is from the debt of a whole young future generation. If If you look at how it's done in the mainland of Europe, your universities are local. They contribute to the local town and city, but they generally actually do. Whereas when we talk about a civic university in Britain, it's nothing like that. And by local, I mean that the academics own children go to it. Which creates a very different idea about what is it that you're actually doing producing teaching, if your own children and their friends are going to the same departments, as opposed to what I think is a more marketized, privatized, you know, we're not at the level yet of the Trump universities in the US, which were extreme. Donald Trump created some, which spent far more on marketing than on teaching. But there is a great danger uh, that we're moving towards, you know, universities successful in Britain if it can bring in large numbers of overseas students who pay very high fees and are happy with what they say has happened to them. Uh, and that isn't what happens elsewhere in Europe.
1: Uh, but, per- but in terms of precarity and sort of the, the expansion of universities that comes up, we're, we're definitely not – we're not – um, I don't have any, I have no data for this, but you hear stories about what it's like to be in Germany, for example, or France and or Italy. I can't speak to any, but it's a nightmare. One in the percent. chat as well, right? It's worse than it is here. So it is interesting sort of how we got
4: ourselves into this. Yeah, and, and there's a danger that we might become. So there's, there's problems with the balance in Italy. There's a lovely book called The Balance about, uh, and you know, you become a senior professor like me and you control the lives of other people in in, in some of these places, but not not all. But you've also got to look at the universities in Norway and Finland and Sweden and Denmark, uh, which, which are done differently. or the students in Denmark who are actually given a grant that they can live off, including a year as an intern that they can live off. You don't, Whereas in England, you can only do an internship if your mum and dad can give you enough money to feed yourself. Um, so there are different models of running universities in, in different European cities. One huge problem we've got in Britain is that we all claim the £9,000 when that came in in 2012. The entire sector got an extra billion, which, which we, we decided to spend very quickly on senior salaries and buildings. And we're now sitting with that fee level fixed, not being altered, but having improved our terms and conditions and pay. And it kind of can't carry on like that. Where well, work can only carry on by bringing in more overseas students with parents with the ability to pay 10, 15, 20, 25,000 pounds. A year for masters courses, and there's a limit to how many of those there are in the world. And also, there's a question about what are you playing at? It's the kind of Swiss finishing school model of a university, and, and that's that's my concern: is is watching universities begin to get driven financially by whether they can do that in England, differently to Scotland, differently to most of of Europe, where the university is so intricately part of the education system; it's not a business. Um, that, that it's part of the city and the location it's actually in. Right? I just think that that's a bit safer than what, what we have. Uh, and one terrible thing is that because of our marketing systems, we will start to believe our own hype, that we're brilliant, that we produce the best, you know, so we go on about, oh, look, we produce a vaccine, isn't it great? There's a dozen vaccines produced around the world. You know, all their other ones aren't terrible, you know, but... But because British universities have to market, the danger is that the academics begin to believe, you know, the 30 UK universities all say they're in the top 10. Do the academics in those 30 universities all believe that they're in the top 10 or that, or that there is such a thing as a ranking that's meaningful, that, that really means that if you were to observe what people are doing in their offices, they're doing kind of top 10 research in that university, but only top 30 in that. And, and it just isn't, I don't feel it's like that.
3: Okay, well, I think this has been a fascinating discussion. And I know that, you know, I haven't managed to cover all of the questions in the chat. and some Really good questions. And there's some really nice comments for you as well, Danny. Just thanking you for a, a lovely interview. And um, I think we'll leave it there because, uh, you know, time is ticking on. It's the end of the day. And I'm sure we've all got fun things to get on to. Uh, just to say again, thank you, Danny, for uh, spending the time to be interviewed or sav-interviewed. Thank you, Rachel, Levi, and Danny, for your insightful questions. Thank, Thank you, you very you so much. much. Bye-bye.
1: Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, audience. Thank you, Danny Darling.
3: Bye.